Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to my podcast, which we are calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope you have been enjoying these weekly podcasts. I'm trying to uh, get into the insight into my personal story, but also the personal story of my friends. I want to give you guys a glimpse of how things really work, both professionally and personally. Uh, and I want to talk about the many faces of success and wealth. And I say this often, it's not so pretty when you really dig into it. But hopefully, uh, at the end of some of these podcasts, you'll be enriched and you'll realize that there is a process to getting to uh, your dreams and trying to achieve them. I've got a terrific guest today who's well on his way to doing those things and is an award-winning uh, creative writer and director. Uh, you can follow us at uh, TMI on your iPhone and uh, Android, etc. You can email me at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. And just a reminder, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital, uh, not the typical Wall Street guy. Uh, I'm not as fancy as some of my buddies out there. I still live two miles from my mom and dad. I do that on purpose uh, because I want to stay close to my family and it helps me stay grounded. Uh, everyone has to figure out their own road to success and what should be on their journey. Uh, and so that's sort of the way I look at things. Um, there are forks in the road. There are detours. There are mistakes. And I hope to share all my detours and mistakes, uh, probably not in the order that I made them, but certainly at least the most significant ones. But today, I really want to talk about creativity and risk and how to figure out when it is the right time to take a risk and when it's the right time to pull back from a risk. Uh, for me in my life, I've never really gotten that right. I've had risk on mentality my entire life. And so I have slammed into the wall as a result of that several times. Uh, it's a little bit easier to know when to walk away from something. Uh, but for me, I haven't been able to, to do that. Uh, and so I, uh, uh, the gentleman I'm about to introduce you to, I want to uh, get his reaction to some of that. Uh, today's guest is at heart a true risk taker. He's a self-made success story. Uh, and he's a creative genius. And in some ways, I would say about the gentleman I'm about to introduce, he's an artist, meaning that he has taken his life uh, and he's used it as a blank canvas and he's painted on the canvas of his life an arc of a story that fits him beautifully. And so when he wakes up in the morning, he can step back and look at that canvas and continue to paint. Uh, and when he sees mistakes on that canvas, he can erase those portions of it and so forth. But he's a phenomenal writer. Uh, he's a music producer. I went to college with this dude, and I'll tell you if you're a Tracy Chapman fan, uh, she was singing one night at McPhee Pub, which was the local pub. At they called it Cappuccinos. Yeah, they called it Cappuccinos. It was in the McPhee Hall. In McPhee Hall, and the, the little place was called Cappuccinos. In, in the yeah. and, and so she was there singing. You got a fast car. And uh, Brian uh, uh, found her. Uh, obviously, she's an award-winning singer. He produced her, her, her several of her records. Uh, he's an author. He's a fellow podcaster uh, from Tufts University. Uh, all these credits, by the way, make me look small, which I love that about Brian. So please welcome Brian Koppelman to T TMI. Brian, welcome. I want to start right away with Tufts University. Let's talk about Tufts for a second. You had a good time there? I did. I, I want to say thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I, I, I want to say right at the top, Anthony, that it's a real uh, testament to your personal uh, charm, kindness, and intellect that I showed up because everything in me screamed not to come because of your, uh, what I think is an immoral support of um, Donald Trump. Okay. But uh, I like you so much personally, 
and uh, I know how well-intentioned in the world you are. And so uh, this is in no way an endorsement of your absurd decision. But every other thing you've ever done, I admire and all I right, respect. Well, first of all, I'm flattered by all that stuff. But what I would like to do, like in everything in life, at TMI, getting information, TMI, for those of you that don't know, some of the uh, – and I got a couple of emails over the weekend that said, just so you know – TMI out there means too much information to a group of people. Of course, the person that emailed me that was 76 years old. Nice. I thought that was funny, but 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 I believe that you got to get information. You got to get well-rounded information and research. So I'm going to welcome you uh, to a Trump meeting, which I think you should accept due to your intellectual curiosity. I want you to meet him, and after you meet him and spend some time with him, if you have the same reaction and the same description using the word immoral. Then we can have another conversation. We probably have a two-hour podcast related to that. Yeah, we don't I have want, to. I'm, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm happy to, to do him, that because. And you, then after you've met him, then you can say, okay, either my decision has changed or it's gotten str- stronger. But I do think that what sometimes happens is through the media prism, uh, some people know me through the media prism. Sure. It may not be exactly who I am based sure. on some of the descriptions that they've read about me. Uh, but but you know my my position on this, and I and I and I've sort of. Uh, uh, conjured with uh, Paul Ryan and others. Uh, I've been a team playing Republican my whole life. Uh, uh, for those of you that really don't know me, I went to law school with Barack Obama, and I'll state this candidly and publicly. I supported him in 2008, bundled money for him. Uh, so I broke from the Republican Party in 2008 because of uh, a personal relationship with uh, then-Senator Obama. Not, n- no disrespect to him and don't dislike him as a person. I actually have a very good relationship with him personally and like him. I'm not exactly 100% on, on a lot of his policies, although some of his policies like social progressivism and marriage equality, I'm right in sync with them. Uh, but I don't think Donald Trump is immoral. But we can talk about that. But what I'd rather do is I'd rather focus you on your creativity and your story. And then what I'd like to do is introduce you to candidate Trump. And then we can come back if you're interested in having another cut. Yeah, I don't, we don't need to make it about that. I'm so public um, on Twitter. I'm at Brian Koppelman in, um, in this position that I have that – it, it it may seem um, as though I'm betraying a core value to some people by talking to the most well-known bundler for Trump. And so, so, so this is an interesting part of our, our political project, if you don't mind me interrupting. No, sure. so, so what's happened now in our political discourse, and by the way, I blame us, the baby boomer generation has done this to the American population. Uh, we have gotten ourselves in a screeched, hardened position. So... And again, I'm not saying you personally, but in general, what we've done in the country now is we've demonized each other yeah. on the left and the right. We can get into this, and you don't have to upload the podcast no, no, no. if you don't gonna, want to. We're going to upload. Are you but, kidding me? But, but this, is the, this is what makes but, the podcast But great. what I think is different here is if you would have made that argument in 2012 and said uh, there was more common ground probably if people really looked at who Romney was versus uh, Obama. And if you really looked at what he did in Massachusetts and really looked at not the rhetoric, but the decisions. What's different here is uh, that the candidate himself, the, who, who you are supporting, is the one doing the demonizing, is the one creating the schism in the country, is the one who talks about race in the most divisive way of anyone who's talked about race in America since George Wallace, and then does it with a smile saying, I'm not a racist. Well, to me, saying I'm not a racist doesn't excuse all the other racist statements, actions, uh, decisions that you make. And so when I look at uh, 
him doubling. And this is why I get to the moral question. This is why I didn't say, I think you're wrong, or I didn't say, gee, I wish you supported the other candidate. Why I think it's immoral is because to rationalize away supporting somebody who would say about a judge, because he's of Latin heritage, because he is uh, Mexican. Now, the guy isn't Mexican. He's American. Uh, he can't be fair. You're smart enough to understand the damage that rhetoric does to all the other children of Mexican descent who are Americans, mm -hmm. who now know that a major party candidate is deciding they're no longer Americans. If your parents or grandparents were from Mexico, now guess what? You're Mexican, not American. And that, to okay. me, is okay, immoral, so, so, and the support of that okay, is so, immoral. Okay, so i got to respond to it. I hope you don't mind, because it's a, it's a little bit of a give and take, and there's an Respond. And I'm not going to intellectually parse it. What, where, I, where I would say, in his defense, where he doesn't get a fair shake, is that they cut him in a way in the media to really make him look unfair. And they don't give you the entire commentary and the entire statement. Alberto Gonzalez is an example. The uh, attorney general for uh, George Walker Bush of Mexican descent came out and defended the candidate and basically said that each person that's a contestant, particularly in a civil case, it's not a criminal case, although people on the left are trying to criminalize it, uh, uh, did say that he does have the right to question, okay, and the judge does have an affiliation with a certain group. Uh, uh, that is standing for open borders, and the candidate has taken a position, which you may not like, okay, and a lot of people may not like, th that he is for immigration and he's for legal immigration, which your grandparents legally immigrated into the country, as did mine, and played by every rule. He's for the legal immigration. What he's upset about, and a lot of Americans are, you may not be, and I can give you my opinion if you want it, but what he's basically saying is that the illegal immigration has led to an evaporation of the jobs in lower and middle income people. And so all he's for is enforcing the laws that are on the books and records right now. He's not against immigration and he's not against Mexicans. OK, so we can talk about it that way because it is polarizing. It does damage the candidate to a large group of people. But when people really hear the full narrative, uh, they do look at it a little differently. But you know, you know something, Brian? The truth of the matter is, you and I are never going to agree on this. There's no, no question about that. Uh, but I will say this to you. The country is not going in the right direction right now. And there is something about what he is doing that is resonating and reaching a very As I said when we, had, when we had dinner uh, in Las Vegas, uh, a lot of people talk about the fact that he is tapping into this anger. But to me, and they say he's tapping into the anger of the populace, but... I don't understand why we've decided that there's a primacy on tapping into the anger instead of calming the fears. And I think it's uh, divisive and dangerous. We can move off of this, Anthony. Yeah, and by the way, if his rhetoric was your rhetoric, and of course we could have a really um, interesting, compelling, and detail-oriented, data-oriented conversation about uh, immigration, percentage immigration, percentage of people we should allow, allow to immigrate, um, uh, what... Uh, policies need to be put in place. That's all fair game, right? We wouldn't agree on that stuff either, but I would never sort of uh, begrudge you your opinions on it. Where, where I know in a, a private moment you might agree is that the rhetoric, because we always talk about the presidency as a bully pulpit. People focus on the word bully, but pulpit is equally important. It's a position that speaks louder than any other position in the country. It's in, in many ways, the main thing the president does is set the tone of the country. Yeah. And okay, so by setting the tone that he's setting, he is uh, 
Absolutely. And, and yes, he'll say um, out of his left hand, I'm in a unifier. But the truth is that what he's doing is dividing, okay. dividing and dividing and dividing. And in okay. a way that so, I haven't seen in my 50 years on this well, planet. But you just had that. OK, I don't, I, and I don't want to I don't want to pick on uh, President Obama. OK, because I genuinely like him as a person. But you just had that division. You've had that rhetoric. You've had class warfare rhetoric now for eight plus years. You've got Elizabeth Warren uh, wrangling on the you class can't warfare. Find me one quote where he looks at a class of people and calls them the things that your guy calls uh, people you, of. You, you, you see what you're what you're now failing to do. What you're now failing to acknowledge, okay, is is the 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 the, the ball got rolled in the last eight years, okay. Hedge fund managers, we're going to talk about that, about your show. Oh, you forgot they've to been, say I'm a co-creator of Billions yeah, when you introduced co- me, yeah, which is probably uh, the thing people yeah, uh, yeah, care was, about I was, the most. I was trying to get into that, but you had to go on your anti-Trump rant there for a second. So I, know <laughs> I did. I owed part, it to the people. I know I know you're part of the never-Trump movement, but we're going to get into the Billions thing in a second. But hedge fund managers have been demonized. Rich people have been demonized. Uh, it's been a it's been an ad hominem aggressive grimacing attack. Okay, uh, you're looking at a person you've known me for a long period of time, or you've known of me. Your dad knows me very well. Sure, uh, we I have came, many many friends in I've common for a very middle, long time. I came from a middle class family. I've paid every one of my taxes. I've worked my you know what off. I'm not arguing to, with you supporting Republicans. That's a very specific idea, thing. I'm saying the idea that somebody could come on the stage and suggest a 92 percent tax rate. Okay, and want to take my personal income uh, that I've worked hard for. By the way, as an entrepreneur and as a fellow entrepreneur, you know that my money is not in a swimming pool in my backyard. My money's tied up in this business. It's tied up in this microphone I'm speaking to you through. It's tied up in the people, the technology, the mandate, the leases around the world to run my business. So the idea that someone could come in and explain to younger people that that should be confiscated from me and redistributed to other people, I find more reprehensible than anything that Donald Trump has ever rendered. Because what that is, that is destructive to the entire fabric of the American dream and the entire fabric of the American society. And so when you're getting it down to one or two choices, and the American people are going to be dealing with that in November, uh, I would go with Donald Trump over that sort of nonsense all day of the week. And if you talk to people that personally know him and Mexicans that personally work for him, if we're going to use those names, okay, there's nobody that dislikes him. Nobody thinks that he's a racist. So we can stay on this if you want. No, we don't have to. That okay. was your closing got, statement. I'll give you my closing okay, statement on this, and then we can but go on. you also on. had your opening statement. So I'm my gonna, closing statement you're my on guest, this. I'm going to let you open and close. No, my go closing ahead, statement on this is that um, I don't begrudge you any of those political stances, right? But I believe this is not, I said this to a journalist friend of mine who's a, a famous journalist who covers this. I believe it's a cataclysmic moment in the country. And that, um, Anthony, the things I'm talking about aren't the sort of uh, comments um, or positions about uh, the economy, right? We can disagree on that, but every, I, I, I absolutely can't uh, decry somebody saying they don't want to pay 90% taxes, right? You've earned your money. I have no argument about that. I have a different position, but I can't argue it on fundamental moral grounds. But when a candidate for the presidency says uh, he's going to put a religious test in to be able to come to this country, no Muslims are allowed in. As someone of Jewish heritage, yeah, I'm an atheist of Jewish heritage. Right, I have to understand. He said it many times. A temporary ban. He walked it back. He didn't really walk it back. He said, we'll see what happens when I'm in there. But 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 the point is he used it to get elected, whether he walked it back or not. 
to say it. I'm just talking about morality, right? right? I'm having a different conversation about morality and saying that's why it's not politics is normal. That's why it's not split on party lines. That's why the brave people in your party will tell you that they understand that he's had a horribly corrosive effect on the way Americans look at one another. Okay, well, we're going to have That's to it. see what happens, okay? Because when he when he wins, okay, I'm going to invite you to the White House for the Christmas party, even though you're an atheist. Uh, and I think what you'll see about the guy, that he's a super effective guy, will surround himself with a great team, and will execute a strategy that I think will create a course correction for the United States that will be an inclusive, unifying course correction. But let's talk about Tufts for a second, Okay. So Somehow you, were, you got the final word. You're, you're, you're amazing. You were back. You are amazing. You back Scaramucci. At, I had to get the final word in case uh, Donald, if you're listening, Brian's actually a very good guy. Don't demonize him on the next campaign trip. Okay, so let's talk about Tusk for a second. Okay, you, we, can we yeah, get the Tusk? We're done. All right. So you, you, you liked it? Yeah, I had a great experience there. Um, Why? I, well, I think a lot of it has to do with the time period in your life, right? I mean, you're. It's really a time of. Uh, for, for me, I led. Um, a, a very um, kind of cloistered existence. I grew up on Long Island, as you did. Yep. And, and you were in Roslyn? I grew up in Roslyn. Um, I had a dad. He, luckily, my dad's still alive. I love him. We're uh, best friends. I speak to him constantly. But I had a, a dad who was successful. And But he was uh, the kind of father who would have a meeting in the city. If I had a Little League game, he would drive home to the Little League game and then go back for dinner. I'm sure you do for your I try kids. to. I try to, but I, I will confess to you that sometimes, and this is one of the big agonies for me, yeah. I do miss some of those games. You know, I missed a, uh, a lacrosse playoff game. I was out in uh, marketing for the firm. And so I find that uh, I am in agony a lot of the times when I do miss the things. But I have, a, I have a pretty good success rate, but I'm not one of those BSers where I'm going to try to pretend that I'm living a perfect life. I've missed a lot Nobody of things. Nobody lives a perfect life, but I will say— I've missed a lot of things that I regret. For me, I had an existence with uh, uh, parents who were hyper-present. I had a, a very loving childhood home, two sisters. We had, in many ways, an idyllic upbringing. And so just the mere fact that suddenly I had to do everything on my own at college, mm -hmm. um, and I had so to had face my problems mom, on like my, my own. We had my mom yeah. on the podcast here for Mother's Day. She yeah. was explaining that I took the bottle until I was four and a half years there old. There you go. I probably was wearing a diaper till I was 11, but she didn't mention that, yeah. and she went into the whole thing. So you got to know that I lived like a slob at Tufts because no one was cleaning up after me. Yeah, the difference between you and us is like you got you probably didn't have the every uh, week uh, doctor's appointment because you had a cough and <laughs> had to see yeah, if it had metastasized. <laughs> right, That's right, the Jewish right. difference. Right. But... Uh, uh, so, so to me, to get to college and to suddenly be able to to make my own mistakes was huge, and to have to figure out, you know, how do I do my own laundry? How do I survive? Then also, because it was a liberal arts college, I got to really take things that I was fascinated by, and I knew early on that I wasn't somebody who was going to focus on the grades or focus on what would look good for graduate school. I early on knew I wanted to take classes that spoke to me. I wanted to use the time. So what did you take? I took a lot of English classes. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do for a living. I felt I would probably... Did you probably... have Jay Cantor? Did you take his class? I'm still in touch with Jay. Yeah, how's uh, he doing? I haven't seen him in a He's long great. Time. He published a new novel he's another, a couple of he's years enough, ago. another left-winger like you. He's, he's big... a MacArthur genius. Yeah. He won the MacArthur genius no, no, I, I remember Jay. the guy. He wrote Crazy Cat, the whole thing. He's, yeah. a, he's an absolute genius. He had a great genius. book called The Death of Che Guevara. Yeah, Jay, if you're listening to this thing, you begrudgingly gave me an A-, minus, even though I was a Ronald Reagan... Michael Keaton, what was the guy's name? Uh, family Ties. Alex Keaton. 
uh, sort of a dude. You hated my ass, but you had to give me the A minus because I wrote about Nietzsche and Marx in a way that you enjoyed. But equally val equally valuable at uh, college, the class I took with him was called the Modern Mind. But e equally, that's the same course I took. Nietzsche, took, Marx, yeah, the uh, Modern. Freud. There was one called the Modern Mind, and he, ta he taught another one about Wittgenstein, which I didn't take. Yeah, but the Modern Mind um, was a fantastic class, Jay. If you're listening, I, it left a big impression on me. Yeah, on 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 me too. But but equally valuable to me were the times at college that I was lost in a way. Be, because it is a time of transition and growth. And, you know, what your show is about, uh, often as I've listened to it, is about the moments people decided to dig deep and figure out who they were and why they were what they were. And so f for me, and I know you know this, one of the biggest things was when I was there, and this goes, interesting, ties into the conversation, I felt there was a moral imperative to be um, against uh, the fact that our endowment was invested in companies doing business in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And... So I was one of the leaders on our campus in the pro-divestment movement because we felt it was there was a moral outrage here, um, and 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 if, if you're listening, I don't I think I've said moral outrage more in this hour than I probably say in the average month. Normally I'm just making fart jokes, but you're, um, you're morally outraged. But I, I but am. Then you write about the hedge fund industry in an interesting way. We'll get to yes, that in a second. So. Uh, well, because I don't just demonize groups of people at all. In fact, I always my curiosity leads me to always find out what's great about people. That's what I'm really interested in. What makes them want to do the things that they do. That's been sort of an obsession for a long time. But when I was organizing this boycott, um, this movement on campus, and I was one of the people sort of leading that m movement, um, we organized a boycott of classes, and this is when I found Tracy. I got Tracy Chapman to perform at this rally, and it was in service of something good and something I cared about that I stumbled upon Tracy, which really changed my life for a What's few years. What's she doing now, Brian? She, I think, lives in San Francisco. I haven't spoken to her in a while, but did I did make that first album. Is she still her. recording? Or? Oh, yeah. She still yeah. Um, sells a lot of records around the world and sells out places everywhere when she decides yeah. to uh, play. Beautiful, beautiful voice. Uh, I, I didn't know her personally, but I did come to see her sing many times when we were at school together. I learned a lot of things during, during that time because um, I did find that sort of like a sophomore year of college is a difficult, a difficult moment in, in your life sometimes. Um, and trying to reconcile having these ideas about the way the world should work with a kind of powerlessness that you have as a 19 or 20 year old. And then figuring out how to grab my own agency and try and make a change. And it was a change that then did happen over the next couple of years. And then through which I ended up being able to do something that affected a lot of people with Tracy's record and that had benefit to me personally because I was lucky enough to have uh, a, a financial interest in that album and I did well at a young age. By doing good, I did well. And all that stuff taught me lessons that I would apply again and again as uh, so I went through life. So let's talk about what are, give me Give me one or two of those lessons. Well, a big one is that if people are often trying to calculate how to become successful, they're trying to study whatever market they're in and really calculate and plan and guess what's going to happen next. Right. But, but I found that, and particularly people do this when planning their career moves, I find that when in planning their career moves, they do that. But uh, I learned that, in fact, if you study what you're instead, what are you obsessed with? What are you animated by? And you chase that down. You have a better chance of becoming successful because you'll be indefatigable, because you're not doing it for an artificial reason. You're not trying to motivate yourself. The motivation is coming from the deepest part of you. And that has been a hallmark for me of all the years after. Well, well, I got to I got to just reinforce that for people, because I would say to you that I had an OK career 
and it probably wasn't going in the direction that I wanted it to go in because I was so supremely focused on doing what I thought was necessary to become successful as opposed to doing what I genuinely loved from the bottom of my heart. And right. so, so, so there I was going down a road where I was forcing, forcing, forcing things. And then I was like waking up. I was 44 years old. I was in Davos, Switzerland. I was panged with Davos envy. Let me tell you quickly what that is. You're sitting there and guys are, I'm 44 and Mark Zuckerberg's 24 and he's worth $50 billion more than me. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, what did I do wrong with my life? I'm this mediocre middle-aged sales guy on Wall Street. Let me go back to my one-star Swiss hotel and put the covers over my head. And it was at that moment where I had the epiphany to say, wait a minute, I got this thing completely wrong. I got to stop caring about what other people think. I got to stop caring about the measuring of the balance sheet and the wallet and just start doing the things that I like. Well, yeah. And I'll tell you, seeing you in your element at SALT, putting people together, uh, deep diving with people on the things that they care about and you care about, seeing you as the master of ceremonies of that entire thing, you saw someone who's in full flight, who's clearly doing exactly what he should thank, be thank doing. You. Thank and, you, because I put a lot of work into it. It means a lot to me. But when you see that, you. you see somebody comfortable in his own skin because he's where he's supposed to be and has the right purpose. There are a couple other lessons that I learned that I think are important to, to say, and they connect to a lot of other things that, that have happened. And, and, and one of those is that experts... Uh, especially so-called experts, are often wrong. And that if you listen to them when you shouldn't and take no for an answer, uh, you'll defeat yourself before you have the real chance to succeed. And so when I took Tracy to eight different... Re well, not only persistent, but I think you have to evaluate who is telling you no and why. You have to understand who they are sitting in their chair, how they're rewarded, to then try to figure out if they're really rendering judgment really on what you have or if they're rendering a judgment based on their own fear and their own issues within their world. And believe in your own And that gut, played right? out over with, and over for again it. for me in my movie career and television career in this as well as in the music career that I have. Okay, so let me ask you. I mean, that's excellent advice. I hope people are actually rewinding or hitting the minus 15 seconds there to go back and hear you say it again, and I hope they can drill it into their heads because it's excellent advice. I'm 52 years old. I wish I had gotten that advice and that wisdom when I was 22. Let me ask you this question. That's what you're going to say about the whole Trump thing in five years. Yeah. Or, you know, when you're at the White House Christmas party with me and you have to admit that he's more like Ronald Reagan than you thought, it's okay. We'll have a drink. I'll, I'll, I'm going to spike your eggnog, though. I Good. promise you that. Okay. I got to ask you this question because I find you, of all of my friends, the most fascinating in the following category. You ready? The deep dive in understanding the complexity of human nature. That's that Abraxas that we were talking about at SALT, and I'll define that for people. The Abraxas is that every one of us, Herman Hesse said one time, that every one of us has some good in us and some evil, and we have to work on the good, and we have to suppress the evil, but it's born into our systems. I find you, of all of my friends, the one that understands that in the most sensitive sort of a way, where you get that the world, yes, has black and white in it, but there's gray mixed in, and there's complexity to human nature. And so my question yes. is, what fascinates you and what bothers you about human nature? Well, it's great. Look, that's a huge question as you're talking about human nature. But um, that is what is so interesting about this time is normally I would say we don't – people confuse uh, the world we live in for uh, a Manichaean construct, which is that it's only good and evil. It's only black and white. 
but it, and, and it's never usually the case. That's why I don't even like myself being as strident as I am about the Trump thing, because I suddenly the world has snapped into Manichaean focus for me. But what I'm so interested in is uh, human potential. I think that's the beginning of it, is I'm really interested in people getting uh, the most out of themselves. When I see somebody in full flight, as I saw you there, something happens to me. I become incredibly happy. Uh, I love seeing people transcend their limitations. But part of loving that is being able to recognize what those limitations are, is being able sometimes in people to see the duality or to see the fight that's going on inside of them. I can't tell you why this has been an interest of mine, but I always like, it's part of being a writer. You know, I've always liked to look at people and, and I always had an, an instinctive understanding of their motives. Somehow um, I had the ability to see when somebody, I mean, it probably helps me at the poker table too, to see when somebody's uh, inner being is sort of um, at a state of unrest. Okay, so, so this brings up an interesting point that you went to law school, I went to law school. Yeah. I went to law school to mitigate risk. And that's ironic because down deep, I'm an inbred risk taker, but I was so worried about making money. I was there on that track making these wrong decisions. Why did you go to law school? I went for a combination of reasons. Um, I can tell you the, the, the reason that I went, the narrative that I um, would have given you as I was going and that I meant and was true is that I read Morris D's book, A Season for Justice. And a couple of things happened to me. Uh, Morris D started the Southern Poverty Law Center. He was a guy who was very successful in business and then realized he'd made enough money and decided instead to start the Southern, he was a lawyer at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they did incredible work in, in the South and um, all over the country. They're the ones who bankrupted, they came up with the legal concept that the Ku Klux Klan was, um, a, they could try it as a business and then bankrupt it and deconstruct it. And that's why it fell apart for 20 years. Uh, after the success with Tracy Chapman, when I realized that, in fact, we didn't um, affect that much change, uh, it brought people, individuals, solace, but the world didn't really shift, I looked to the law as a possibility. So that was a part of it. Another part of it was that my whole life until I was 30 was about finding ways to avoid acknowledging in myself that I wanted to be an artist, that I wanted to be a creative person. That uh, I, I, and when my son was born, uh, when I was 29, 30, uh, when he was nine months old, I, I looked at him and I, I realized I wasn't going to be able to tell him to chase his dreams if I wasn't. And so, and that's when I decided I was going to take the risk of becoming a writer. But until then, I was finding intellectual challenges, things to occupy my time, occupy that brain space. Law school was incredibly useful. Our first movie, Rounders, probably wouldn't have happened if I, I didn't go to law school because it's set, you know, Matt's characters going to law school. And learning how to write on deadline in that way, having to go into that environment and figure out how to succeed at it. I got, there was a tremendous amount that you get out of law school. I love the thought process. We talked about this last time we were together. Um, you, you immediately learn how to frame, I, right? You and I could have, if we wanted to, we could have taken each other's side in, in the Trump argument, and that's a training that we got at There's law school. No question. That's uh, a big, big advantage. It's a huge yeah. advantage when you're in negotiations. When I'm talking to an agent who's even advocating for me, I'm able to articulate, okay, well, these are the potential arguments the other side's going to say why yeah. they should only pay this or why only this should happen. Well, I'm going to give a big shout-out to the dean of Harvard Law School who was my civil procedure professor, and she said it better than I could ever say it. She said, if you leave here after three years and you're able to take very complex ideas and opposing ideas 
and synthesize them in your brain in a way where you can understand both sides, you have gotten a great legal education. And so you've definitely done that, and I appreciate I went to Fordham that. Law at night and got the same kind of thing. Yeah, no, no question. And let me tell you, there were positives of going to Harvard Law School, but there were also negatives. Uh, uh, believe what are the me, negatives? Well, I failed the bar exam twice. Uh, there was no... There was, they didn't train you. There was no training for the bar exam, and I was a cocky SOB. I was out water skiing in Manhasset Bay by Bar Beach, which you know well. Sure. I said I never failed an exam. Of course I'm going to pass this, and I failed it by one multiple state. You know, remember the multi-state? I failed it by one multiple choice question. Okay, so right. No, I, I heard on the podcast the other day that yeah. you took the third time, took the two weeks off, studied, and passed. Yeah, I had to pass it because I, was, I needed to I was be very a, happy to hear it. I needed, you needed to be a finisher. But, but this is something i got to ask you because you, 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 you talk glowingly about your parents, Mazel Tov. That's awesome. And I know your dad very well, and I, too, love the guy, obviously, from a distance. But he's been a role model to me from a distance because he's a mensch in addition to being a great business person. So I would say you grew up in a fairly financially stable home. Is that fair to say? Yeah, pretty did much. That, did that help you, or did it set you back in some ways? Because I find sometimes that it's there's the an worst apraxis. for people, but not for me. For yeah. me, it was great it, it because can be my bad mother. For Isn't um, that ironic? Yeah, it can be bad for people because it can allow you to be complacent and Correct. lazy. Um, but uh, my mom, first of all, my dad was bootstrapped. You know, bootstrapped himself. And we lived in a regular neighborhood and everything until I got to a right. certain See age. See that? I'm going to interrupt. Regular neighborhood. Okay. I'm two miles from my parents in a regular neighborhood. Yeah. And it was a huge... Why, so why wh- get distracted by the BS? So there, that was where I lived until mo- you know, until I was in ninth grade or eighth grade or something mm-hmm. like that. Then we moved into a bigger house. But uh, I also had a mom who always told me, uh, and my dad always hated rich kids, and my mom always told me that I had to find a way to succeed... Uh, on my own because uh, there wasn't going to be anything for me. So uh, my dad's an incredibly generous guy and would if I was in a spot of trouble, but I got lucky. Look, I was young. Uh, my dad helped me with the Tracy Chapman thing because so he was in that. your dad on a podcast talking he's about a fatherhood. Great, because he's a great he, podcast he, guest. But he, 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 he's an example to me in every way about being a dad because the thing I'm saying, I'm not saying it glibly and I'm not being loose about it. The guy didn't miss a Little League game, and he would – now, if he was traveling on a business trip, he would miss a Little League game. But if he was in the state of New York – he was at the game. I think it's wonderful. And I think it's a he big was at rest. every basketball game. And it's beautiful that you remember that. And he would day. call me when I come home from school and ask me how my day was before there were cell phones. So and my mu- so like that gift. But he would also do the kind of thing where if I was up in school, um, I remember once I was a huge boxing fan, and he had promised that we could go to this fight, uh, and I did really badly, and in a way that was. Uh, I, like, threw my grades out to hide them when I was, like, in eighth grade or something. And he was going to take me to Montreal to see Sugar Ray Leonard fight Duran. And uh, he ripped up the tickets. Think about this. How bad do you think he wanted to see the Sugar Ray? He wanted to see the fight. But you didn't think about that. He sacrificed. Forget being tough to your kid. He he worked hard, so hard his whole life to be able to go if he wanted to take his son Mm -hmm. and go see the best prize fighter in the world fight. But he, and, and he didn't go with his buddies. Instead, he stayed home and made sure I did my schoolwork that weekend. And he ripped up the tickets that he would have been able to use. And it's that kind of gesture that gives you a huge, for me, teaches you long after, right? It wasn't about doing well in school. It probably still didn't do that well. But the lesson it gave me about focus, about intention, about what really matters, those lessons really lived on. And by the way, he would rip up those tickets and then give me a hug. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. I don't like you, Brian. There was still always love in the house. I, I, I love it. I want to switch the billions because I know the clock is running here. Hey, Brian. You learn anything from my talk? 
Volumes. You stand for mine? I know your act. <laughs> you sending me messages? Because I'm here. Well, the kids in my office really thought you might buy that house. I told them you got big balls, but not that big. They're right. I'll probably pass. It's so nice, though, you know. Feels like you're part of the beach and ocean. And all that air out there? You know about it. Your daddy's got a little place out there. He must let you use a bedroom some weekends if you say please. Walk away. I should. But then again, what's the point of having fuck you money if you never say fuck you? I want to talk yeah. about the success of the show. Mazel Tov, congratulations on it. Uh, how did you know that the world was ready for a Wall Street soap opera? Uh, so I had long been, like, talk about the fascination. Uh, years before David Levine, my partner and I, had been thinking about how to do a show set in the world of hedge funds. And we got to visit with some hedge funds and be around them and talk to some fund managers. And then the crash happened, and it was clear we couldn't do the show then. Um, and after which we had these notes and these contacts and these thoughts about billionaires and about the fact that billionaires are like nation states. They move through the world yeah. like they're a nation state, like a small country. And uh, when we realized we could, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, with whom we created the show, uh, we realized that United States attorneys had the same kind of power because they're wide discretion. They have incredible prosecutorial discretion. And so we could, they live, they're like kings in a way. And that we could set these forces against one another, it would create uh, something really compelling. And so we set about re really researching the world, spending time with people in these positions, and then really trying to understand why they live the way that so, they live. So I'm going to pay a huge compliment. So you and I went to the Hunt and Fish Club. We had, uh, yeah. we had dinner. Dave, I brought my wife, Deirdre. I was very negative on your show. I was well, very, you hadn't seen it yet. I hadn't seen it. I was very biased negatively. I said, oh, my God, here we go. Another cabal and an anti-hedge fund rant from a quasi-Bernie Sanders communist. That's basically I'm a Clinton thought. guy, by the I, way. I, I, you're a Clinton communist. So, so, so I basically said, there's no way, blah, 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 blah. And then when I came and heard you, I said, this guy is going to figure out a way to thread the needle. And let me explain that to people. You're going to explain the tension and the good and evil in both sides of this adversarial relationship. And I thought you did that masterfully. And so tell us... How? It's a great because question. So many people well, aren't able to, to do that. that. Question you asked me about people, which is how do you present this? Again, it has to do with a, a few things. One, going back to not trying to calculate. So, we just decided we were going to tell the story the way we wanted to. Normally, what you do is set a show up. Is if you have an idea, you go pitch it to networks. And because David and I have been lucky enough to have a long career at this, if we wanted to go pitch something to television, they would buy it, meaning they would pay us to write the pilot script. But then it would be at their election whether they wanted to make the pilot. What that gives you is um, a financial cushion during the time that you're writing, because writing a pilot script could take four months, five months. Instead, we decided we, want, we had a very specific idea of how we wanted the show to, be, to live. We didn't want it to be good guy, bad guy. We wanted you to not know who to root for. We wanted you to care about both at different times. Yeah, they're both heroes and anti-heroes. That's right. And we decided we were going to write it. Uh, and I remember telling Andrew we were going to do this and convincing him that this is the right thing to do. We were going to write it on spec so that a network would have to make the decision. If they wanted to buy it, they had to make the pilot at least. 
And, and we were going to show them exactly the kind of show that it was. And then we walked into David Nevin's office, who's the president, now the chairman, president of Showtime. And David had read the pilot script. And we looked in his eyes, and we could tell he would make our show. And we said to him, and our agents were in there, and this was another time of not letting the experts uh, rule the day. We were supposed to go have many more meetings. And in the meeting with the head of Showtime, we just said, if you decide you want this, we're going to sell it to you and be your partner. Well, I'm going to give you a huge compliment from the legendary Ron Howard, who was at the SALT conference. You and I interacted with him at the cocktail party. He said he called Nevins and said, this show is a real winner, and he sits down and watches it with his wife. So yeah, that, was, that was a lot of knockers going right And let there. me say, this is one of the great things about SALT. If, uh, if people, uh, by next year, this whole national long national nightmare with uh, Donald will be over, and if people should go to SALT, because um, I, I met Ron Howard there, and uh, I'd never met him in this business in, in 20 years in the movie business. And um, we've gotten together since and now know each other. And yeah. that's one of the gifts yeah. of SALT. Is oh, that it makes me happy. You because pull, because you I, do, I it's want a, to create positive externalities. It's what Tony like Shea, that. the founder of Zappos, calls collision spaces. Yes, And exactly. collision spaces are really valuable. And you created an incredible one there. Oh, where, I, I, where I, you're I don't want to people, take too much credit. I'm going to give it to my staff because they really do a lot of that work. But... Ron Howard said to me as we were walking out, he said, I really should have brought my wife. I said, well, hopefully next year you'll come back. That's great. So I'm glad you guys have gotten together. I know we're running out of time, so I've got two quick questions for you, okay? The first question is some of my contemporaries in the hedge fund space think the show is about them. Let me finish. Go. And some of them, some of them love that. Some of them supposedly hate that, but down deep, I all think they secretly love that. What's your reaction to that, and what's your reaction I to I love it. I, look, okay, David so and I love it. We okay. feel like um, whoever wants to claim it's about them, yeah. go out there and claim it's about you. Right. Um, why not? Look, we've, our deal with, with the billionaires— Who is it about, Brian? Our deal with the billionaires we sat with is unless they identified themselves, we weren't going to say who we sat down with. You know who some of them are because they've told you. Some of them have publicly said it. Jim Chanos is somebody who was kind enough to give us some of his time. He knows mm -hmm. Axe isn't based on him, but Chanos really led us into the mindset of a certain kind of hedge fund thinker about activist hey, listen, investments. I'm, I'm proud of sitting down with and you. I love and, that guy. And giving you, giving you my And for the sense, in between the first and second no season, you sat down with us, and that, yeah. uh, which was really great, came to the writer's room, and that was really fantastic, super valuable for us. Uh, but it's about all of them and none of them. If anybody looks or acts like me, just make sure they have a good head of hair. That's the only thing. Well, you know, we're going to try to put you in the show. Okay, seconds, all right. Got mazel tov. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, and I don't even have an agent, so it's not going to cost you anything. How do you create the magic? Take it easy, okay? I'm the goddamn U.S. Attorney, Wendy. So I've been working there since before we were married, and long before you were in office. Look, not that we're there. But we did always discuss that the day might come when there was conflict. That was before I was making eight times what you make. And before you started making Chuck Sr. plays like this. Leave him out of it, okay? And who makes more money, really? Is this uh, what we're teaching the kids? Oh, are we teaching them that daddy's job is always more important than mommy's? I work for the public good. No, you work for the good of Chuck Rhodes. Maybe sometimes they intersect. Oh, my God. How do you create the magic? That's the best question, uh, because there's no answer for that question, Anthony. You know, part of it is rigor. So I always tell people, and, and the one part of that chase your dream thing, it, people often will give the advice to chase your dream, and then other people will say, well, it's been proven that chasing your dream isn't the air answer for success. 
But what people often leave out when it comes to chasing your dream is the rigor required then to execute the chase. And so when you ask about the magic, what I think it is is that David and I and our team of actors um, and our crew are rigorous in the way in which we approach doing what we do. And so we won't settle. We will work seven days a week, as many hours as we need to, to uh, try to deliver a script, a show, to do the edit, to put just the perfect song in, to make sure that the thing looks exactly right. I mean, it is about being a little obsessive, and that's why I talk about the need for, uh, for people to uh, follow their enthusiasms so that this obsessiveness comes from deep inside. Okay, I love it. Two, I'm, gonna, I'm Italian, so I Go said ahead. two last questions. Now that's I'm going to say two Rock last questions again. Favorite books. Give us a couple books that we should go out and read. Um, okay. I think a great nonfiction book to read is uh, by Haruki Murakami, who's my favorite novelist, but he has a nonfiction book called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running that is one of the best deconstructions of what it takes to accomplish something I've ever read. It's about purpose and mission and the way to achieve, told by this incredible writer and runner. And uh, everybody, it's a short, easy, great book. You can okay, listen to it on audio book or, or read it. How about a, non, how about a fiction? Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to stick with Murakami, and I'm going to say Norwegian Wood. But mm. another great book is uh, Netherland by Joseph O'Neill. And then I'll tell you one mm, last one. That a great book. Here's, a one, one. here's one that uh, I've never recommended to anybody who didn't thank me for it. Uh, actually, two books. So one, I'm going to say my wife's latest novel, Hesitation Wounds. Her name's Amy Koppelman. She's a great novelist. It's a, 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 a little bit of a sad book, but it's really worth your time. And then there's a book that I've recommended to 100 people, and all 100 have thanked me for it. It's... I've never met anyone who doesn't love this book. It's written by David Benioff, one of the creators of Game of Thrones, but it's not fantasy at all. It's called City of Thieves, and it's set in Leningrad, the onset of World War II, and it is uh, really a stunning and beautiful book about okay, life I'll, and its I'll purpose. I'll pick that up. David is a terrific writer. He's a great writer. So, so I'm going to give a shout-out to your podcast, which is called The Moment. I'm inviting myself on as a guest so I can finish this conversation with great. you, so I hope you don't mind that. Uh, give us uh, 30 seconds on what the thesis is of the moment. Great. It's all the stuff that we're talking about. So I'm really interested in moments of transition in people's lives, what I call inflection points, when they're at a very higher or, or when they're at a decision point that uh, can either influence their, their lives in a positive or negative way, and then in the aftermath of that decision or that process. So I have people like Mario Batali and Seth Myers and uh, Amy Mann uh, on the show, Salman Rushdie, to talk about these great moments in well, I, I want Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss. I, w- I want to get a shot at that with you. So I'm inviting myself on. I want to thank you a great deal for being here, Brian Koppelman. Uh, thank you again. I want people. You're a good to friend. F- it's my pleasure. Follow Brian at Brian Koppelman at K O P P E L M A N at Brian Koppelman. Uh, subscribe to his podcast, The Moment, on the Slate Network. Watch Billions on Showtime if you really want to have a fascinating Sunday you evening. You can catch up on demand before season two. And when is the new season starting, Brian? Do you have 2017. We don't have the date. It'll be sometime the... toward the beginning of 2017. Beginning of 2017. So congratulations on all that. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, TMI, with me on uh, on iTunes. Don't forget to rate the re- review so we continue to bring you the content. Please share the podcast with friends and co-workers who think would enjoy listening to some of our wacky and wild stories. Uh, and, and remember, please, you can email us at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. I'm on Twitter at Scaramucci, S-C-A-R-A-M-U-C-C-I. 
and thank you again for listening.